0: And thanks, Chloe. After five years, you're still Max Caulfield. Don't give me the guilty face. At least pretend you're glad to see me. I am seriously glad to see you. Oh, and thanks, Chloe. It makes perfect sense
1: I'd see you today. Yes, it's been that kind of day. Hello, and welcome to this premium podcast on one of my favorite stories of all time life is strange i am connor joined by my partner in time for today harry hello yes we did commit to the bit and dress the part you're welcome also jack our editor has done an incredible job as in the always Round, yeah the, the moving bus fly, everything and i must say this might surprise people but this is like the number one bit of content i really wanted to do <laughs> since starting here because i have a deep affinity for the original and the prequel not the woke-washed sequels, especially because
0: I know that you've sent to me before. Er did a video on this, yes. and it seems to be. Woke-washed. I rewatched. I rewatched it in preparation for this, and um, I don't agree with every critique of his, but I do. Having rewatched it, I, I do think he has some good points in in parts of it. But we'll get into that as we as we go along, because this is your favorite thing ever. And this is not where I was. This is not anything that I was expecting to ever cover for Lotus Eaters. I don't think most people would think I'd like this. And and certainly, I enjoyed it much more than I was expecting to. Particularly the subplots going on, primarily with the adults in in the story. Less uh, less so some of the subplots going on with some of the teenage characters. I do still have issues with it that we'll get into as we go along so yeah. i hope i don't upset you too much it's all right I, people have already had their fill of watching me try like smash your hopes and dreams when we discussed man of steel so i'm not going to be doing that because i was much more positive on this overall even yeah. if i've still got issues here so now. we've so a couple
1: of provisors before we start we're going to spoil literally everything with the original and um, the prequel please don't watch this video if you haven't played it because i think harry can attest to the fact that it is worthwhile for all the twists and turns to experience it yourself first and then come away with your own take. Um, I believe it's free with PlayStation Plus or something like that at the moment. That's how I accessed it at the moment. Yeah, it's really cheap on Steam. The first episode's free, so you can just go and try it. Also, we won't be discussing, except in a little bit in passing in relation to the original and the the prequel, the inferior sequels, which is Life is Strange 2 and True Colours, mainly because they're utterly abysmal and have next to nothing to do with the original. And I will be quite praiseworthy. So if you've already played it and don't like it, don't expect a dumping session. I'm going to gush a little bit.
0: Okay, just just to clear up first. So you said that the sequel, while we're on the subject, was Woke Washed. Many people would probably say that Life is Strange is already Woke. How would you respond to that? I would say
1: that if you're looking at the 2015 to 2013 Tumblr-friendly aesthetic, and not mining the inbuilt political and moral presuppositions of the narrative, then you've only got a surface-level take. And that kind of parallels how the game itself is saying, look at Arcadia Bay on the surface. It's an affluent, up-and-coming town. Um, except for the, the front where it's been dilapidated by the 2008 crash. It's quiet, it's sleepy, it's kind of wholesome, but beneath the surface there's this undercurrent of darkness and supernatural terror. I would say to people that if you are looking at this game and taking the idea from it that it is very leftist friendly and not seeing that David Madsen is right about everything, mm. clearly you haven't played it properly. Well,
0: yes, David was clearly the best character as far as I'm concerned. My primary concern for most of the story was ensuring the happiness of his and Joyce's relationship. I was trying to maximize the wholesome family values rather than just give in to everything that Chloe wanted. Because I will admit at first, I found Chloe rather unlikable. But depending on the choices that you can make through the story, she can show signs of development towards becoming a better person, particularly in one of the false endings that you get at one point, which was rather heartbreaking to me that I wasn't able to make the conclusive ending. But anyway, what you say about the Arcadia Bay having this wholesome aesthetic on the the surface and then below it, there's the darker aspects seeping through. That was one of the reasons that I was interested in covering this with you, not just because of the fact that I put Connor through Mulholland Drive, which he didn't enjoy at all and thought was an absolute head trip that he couldn't wrap himself around. Um and I agreed to do this uh, as as sort of payback for it, uh, was the fact that you said that this was heavily inspired by Twin Peaks, my favorite television show, another masterpiece work by David Lynch. And certainly, as I was playing through it, there were lots, lots of references, just direct references to it, not just the fact that Chloe's number plate is literally Twin Peaks, and that if you choose the the bad ending you could say you get an, a direct throwback re- uh, reference visual reference to the opening sequence of twin peaks when you see a car driving past the sign that's outside of the town you get that same thing for arcadia bay also it was clear to me that it was heavily inspired in the narrative and the themes twin peaks is also a town which is wholesome on the surface very sleepy has a small population there's this thing where the sign in the show says it's got population of 51,000 that was a mandate by the studio they actually only ever shot it and intended it to feel like there's about 5,000 people in the town. Um, Everybody knows one another. Everybody has relationships with one another. But in those relationships, there's lots of twisting and turning and dark twists between everybody. There's a lot simmering underneath the surface you only learn as you go through. That was very clear. Then there's the Rachel Amber storyline, which particularly in the original, is very clearly analogous to Laura Palmer. So in Twin Peaks, the central primary storyline is who killed Laura Palmer. In this, it's where is Rachel Amber? And then eventually, who killed Rachel Amber? I will say, just on a purely emotive level, the
1: scene in Dark Room where they find Rachel's body gets me every time. Voice actresses do a fantastic
0: job with that. Very good voice performance.
1: Yes. So I... I also noticed as well that it's not just Twin Peaks it's inspired by. There are little tidbits to other David Lynch bits. Particularly, I've only seen Mulholland Drive, but the references to the homeless woman out back at
0: the diner and, mm, and, yes. and this, this Honestly, nature of that. i I was expecting the homeless woman to, when I saw that there was a homeless woman in it, I was expecting, oh, okay, is she going to have the dirty face like from the from the diner scene in Mulholland Drive? I was very surprised at the restraint in not doing that.
1: The interesting thing about the homeless woman is that people have suggested and this has been refuted that she is a character with more significance than she's been given so when you go to there's an arcadia bay police missing bulletin board and there's a couple of people on it that she might be Mm. and so that's most likely the other interesting thing that people did suggest is because of her cloudy eyes because of her haircut because she has a very mysterious background people were wondering if she's one of the max variants that got displaced in time now, the developers have confirmed that's not the case, but I do think that would have been a really interesting little mm. uh, twisty bit. But, but, but there you go. So it's worth diving into the, the rest of the setting then because the funny thing about this game is it was originally made by a French development studio, don't And it was written by a Frenchman, and then they realized that there were certain cultural incompatibilities that they didn't quite gloss over. So, for example, when you first meet Warren, they had decided to put in the script that, she, he was going to kiss Max on the cheek. And then they brought in an American writer called Christian Devine to turn around and go, hang on a minute. That's, that's, that's not, not what we do. No, that's not quite right. We, we don't do that here. And so they chose this sort of sleepy little Oregon tale, not just because of their love of Twin Peaks, but because one of the writers went on holiday there and he liked the aesthetic. Mm. But Devine sort of touched it up a bit and augmented the language to be more authentic. And lots of people have complaints about, again, the sort of Tumblr-ish slang that's used. Chloe says or a lot. And people were saying, "Oh, this isn't this isn't accurate." Uh, did, did they go to school in 2013?
0: <laughs> well, that's that's one of the points that Er brings up in his criticism, which is that they actually got it spot on. Yeah. This is exactly what self-absorbed teenagers of this period speak uh, spoke like, and what many of them still speak like in a variation. It is Juno esque, and I know a lot of people go back and cringe at some of the dialogue choices in in Juno and the writing in that but it is authentic how well the authenticity of it is going to work for you will be completely subjective to you it didn't bother me that much apart from chloe's use of the word hella and some of the you know balls." i'm going let's get down to bidness yeah. stuff like that i have a tolerance for that that i can go through but it was still a little bit grating to me Looking sick, Max. A couple tats, some piercings, and we'll make a thrasher out of you yet. Ready for the mosh pit, Shaka Bra? Maybe not. But I also noticed as it goes on, the story goes on, there is a bit there's less and less of that, particularly from Chloe, because she is revealed to be actually a lot smarter than she lets on at first. This isn't particularly natural behavior to her. It's something that she picked up from Rachel Amber, as we find out in the prequels. So if you make the sorts of choices that make it so that Chloe is adapting and becoming a better person, you'll get less of that. If you make the sorts of choices where you're egging Chloe on to do terrible things and you end up getting her to shoot Frank and his poor dog Pompidou, which I didn't know was a thing until I got to the end screen of that episode and said, wait, and it said, uh, you went away with uh, from Frank peacefully or something. And then there were the other options underneath that says, Chloe shot the dog, Chloe shot and killed Frank. And I was thinking like, how do you get those choices? Anyway, I started blasting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange to me. And it seems strange to me that uh, there are complaints that can be made with this type of format game, the telltale story based games. And, you know, I, I I have some of my complaints with this in regards to this game, particularly, which is, you know, the the illusion of choice, the fact that sometimes there are lots of choices that, Only change tangential things. They only change minor details or minor bits of dialogue here and there when it comes up and says, oh, this is a choice based game. And then, especially, I have to be critical of this game that the end choice is so pivotal and has the basically either way erases most of the choices that you made before. Even if it is more of a personal development for Max's story that the course of that week changes her as a person, I still find it to be personally a bit of a cop out when it does something like that um still there is a decent level of choice that you can make to change the events leading up to that final decision that you make and uh, those ones were the ones that really surprised me when i saw oh you can you can just get chloe to accidentally <laughs> randomly kill people here and there i also saw from er's video that you can get her to shoot herself by accident at yes. one point which i didn't and once again, if you're complaining that you're making all of the choices in a way that makes Max and Chloe utter and outright psychopaths, and then you complain about their characters being psychopathic, it seems to me on the same level as complaining that you chose all of the, ro- uh, the what was it, ro- Renegade? Renegade options in Mass Effect, and then go, I don't know, the Shepherd guy's a bit of a dick, isn't he? Well, you are in charge of the decisions that form the characters. yeah, And even the game, to a certain extent, is self aware about the fact that Max through using the powers in the way that she does, is manipulating her friends around her in a way that isn't very positive.
1: Yeah, so I've, I've got a few things to disentangle about that. The reason why I'm comfortable with the choice-based game having quite a fixed and binary ending is because the overall theme of the game plays into the mechanics, and that is that, ultimately, are you going to defy fate and make sacrifices and be kind of selfish villain, or accept the inevitability of fate, grow personally, and possibly acquiesce to Rachel's requests, which we'll get into when we talk about the mystical elements of it. The game directors also turned around and said that something from RPGs is that a lot of the time people will quick save and then do something like go and kill a whole village full of merchants in Skyrim and then reload it back so they can get out of consequences. What they wanted here is to be able to explore multiple options within the story-based game but have the mechanic be quite deliberate and still keep the players in the same moral quandary of well, should I be making this action even if I can get out of it anyway? This is Max's dilemma of being Mm. quite a socially insecure person, a misfit, brand new kid, and doing small and subtle things but are quite manipulative. For example, forgetting Juliet's name, rewinding and acting like she always knew it. These sort of things weigh heavy on you and they have consequences for not only the end choice you decide to make, but also the structural integrity of the universe as it starts fraying and fractionating and Max comes to confront another version of herself lost to the multiverse later mm. on in that horrible dream sequence
0: yeah it, it is basically outright stated in this that every time she's changing the past she's basically going back and creating some fractured timeline which is one of the reasons that all of the changes start to pile up and pile up and pile up and become the whirlwind the vortex that almost destroys the town near the end although well well Well, that could be one interpretation. The other interpretation is that for whatever reason, God really, really, really wants Chloe dead. And the only way to save her is to literally, like almost ritualistically sacrifice an entire town to save her. Okay. It's not God, it's Rachel. Okay. I've not heard this interpretation. We'll we'll get into that. Yeah. My main thing was just that, okay, it seems that... And that was also, I, I, I must say, also something that hindered my enjoyment of the prequel slightly, was going through all of these events and seeing the beginning of their relationship and all of the happy moments. and The, the game even does twist the knife in the post-credit sequence That by, was so unnecessary! By reminding you, because I was being reminded the entire time that oh, well this is nice, but Rachel ends up dead, and Chloe ends up dead, and there's nothing I can really do about it unless I kill literally everybody else involved in the story. Also prequel, Please stop trying to make me feel bad for Nathan, who is a, in the sequel, I already know this because I already played through it, a drug addict and a murderer and an accomplice to a serial killer. And a rapist, basically. Yeah, and basically a rapist. I don't care how much you try and go, look, three years before, he was just a weird, awkward kid who was being bullied. Okay, don't really care. Stop trying. I won't step in for him. I refuse to step in for him. I let him get bullied and I liked the jock who was bullying him more for that because he deserved to be bullied. So it's funny, the reason in The Tempest that he plays Caliban, are you familiar with the actual... I studied The Tempest in uh,
1: college. So for anyone who doesn't know, Nathan plays Caliban in the reenactment of The Tempest. And Caliban was treated kindly by Prospero until he tried to rape his daughter. So Nathan is playing that resentful little scuttlebug role. And so he is a pathetic creature, but he's also morally contemptible. So I think the game's quite self-aware of that, even though he's meant to be pitiable for how he's raised. He's also culpable for his Mm. choices. He does almost wet himself on stage the second he walks out there. That's if you didn't help him, actually, with Drew. Oh, good. Gives a good performance if you stuck up for him a little bit, but then he ends up being a total scumbag anyway.
0: Oh, good. I'm I'm glad I helped to embarrass him because, once again, he was another one of these scummy teenage characters who's acting like a scummy teenage character would just turned all the way up to 11, which is the... Once again, it seemed very reminiscent of Twin Peaks because there are a number of characters in that who are going to the high school in Twin Peaks who are involved in the drug business. They're dealing on the side so that they can try and make up some money. They're also... Uh, there's a very... Famous bit from it where it's uh, Bobby shot a guy because one of the people who's a main character in it does end up like he's a teenager and he ends up killing somebody, not in the same circumstances, but it all is all very reminiscent and highly influenced by it. But to get back to my original point that I think I drifted from was that in ER's video, um, he says outright that he did he he played about halfway. Well, he played up to the point where Chloe is introduced. And you start to get all of the dialogue from her and decided, no, this dialogue is not for me. And he switched the game off and then he finished it off by watching Let's Plays of the rest of it. And then did the rest of his um, review from there. So I don't know how much he explored the options of how you're able to change and influence events as it goes on. Once again, you still met with the binary end at the choice, a bit binary choice at the end, but you can still influence things as they go along. Um, so I don't know how much that influenced him that he maybe only watched one play. He also says outright that the game doesn't seem to suggest that there are multiple timelines going on. It absolutely when it does. when it outright does state this. So it's
1: point. important to note as well that and we won't be covering the sequel comics here, but it's worth just a quick mention. Um, Emma Viacelli's series explores something called the transect, which is the world between the multiverse that Max learns to tap into and travel. So she goes to different mm-hmm. timelines and explores the different options. And that is technically canonical considering it does factor into the sequels as well so it absolutely has alternate universes i don't want to make the whole thing a, an er reply video
0: as well no, I, I, I just very
1: conscious of well, that it, it,
0: it's it's good though to get these because people i imagine watching this yes. video will be familiar with that video that might be the most they've ever come into contact with this story mm. so i thought it would be good to clear a few things up there um, which is he also brings up the idea that Time travel doesn't make any sense. And time travel, of course, is very difficult to write a story around that will be consistent because it opens up so many different possibilities and so many different questions. But one of the things that I wanted to suggest my take on was that he brought up that he didn't understand the way that Max inhabits the consciousness of the Maxes that she goes into when she changes the past. When you look at the photographs and you go into the past and you change everything, and then she wakes up in a time, for instance, when she first does it and she goes back and prevents William from crashing his car, William being Chloe's dad. Um, he She wakes up in a new reality where she seems to be friends with Victoria and the others. And he sa- he asks the question, I think it's a legitimate question, what happened to the Max that was in- occupying this reality up until that point? Has she basically just killed and replaced her? And I this is my interpretation. It seems that from my understanding, from my interpretation of it, because there is no direct answer given, that it would be that she is occupying the consciousness for a short time while she's there of that max, maybe putting that consciousness aside in the same mind, and then that consciousness returns when she leaves that timeline. That Chloe
1: might implies that, actually, because when she blacks out after correcting the timeline in episode five, when she goes back to tell Chloe that mm. Jefferson's the villain. Then Chloe, when she, though, when they both wake up on the beach, she says that you went on autopilot.
0: Ah, uh, yes.
1: The other interesting thing is that they are explicitly in this story alluding to a bunch of different things, not just Twin Peaks, but they've also said it's Quantum Leap and Aston Kutcher's butterfly effect. So- I've not watched either of those. Okay, Quantum Leap allows you to hop between bodies using time travel. With yourself at various points in the timeline and the butterfly effect is aston kutcher's character has the ability to read his old diary entries and he gets a nosebleed and basically has an aneurysm and then transplants back to that time and inhabits different versions of the timeline if he changes that thing in the past so the mechanics are kept a little bit vague they're developed on in the sequel comics but i think the more important thing that developers are focusing on are less of the mechanics and less of explaining all of the supernatural elements that are alluded to and more How do you react when you are given a certain set of constraints and how do you improve things on the micro level? That's why she calls herself, she doesn't call herself, she enters the competition of everyday hero. It's that you have this cosmic power in your hands, but you're still the insecure person that has to learn to be worthy of wielding that power in a responsible manner.
0: Yeah, and that's some of the nuance that I think some people miss from this, which is that yes, Max is in some ways manipulating the people around her in a way that could be considered uh, bad by, like you say, just changing these minute things so she can socially come across as more confident than she actually is. But part of the question is, would you do the same thing in that situation? And despite what you may see as negative manipulations of her friends, is there still good that you can do with a power like this? Especially like saving Alyssa repeatedly. Max
1: becomes friends with Alyssa when she wouldn't have become friends with her before, but it's just mm-hmm. by seeing her get hit, rewinding and sparing her from a football, smacking her in the face, or being hit by Lou roll or something. You know, that's relatively benign and benevolent. And although she also the, faces the consequences from those other smaller manipulations like trying to get Juliet's name right to curry social favor.
0: Although you. the ending being such a binary choice where you either destroy the town or let Chloe die and reverse the entire week so that things go down slightly. Di- well, very differently than they would have had you saved Chloe in the uh, in the first place seems to suggest that the whilst you can make these minor changes and while you can do good things, it's better to... Just, I, I don't know if you'd say this. It's better to embody that, em, embody that person any uh, before you have to make all of those compromises to your moral character. So you should. It's it's quite. I, I'm trying to figure it out myself as I'm going through this well, right now. Well, but something that might be helpful actually to me.
1: is that Max's name, Max Caulfield, is an allusion to Holden Caulfield from *Catcher in the Rye*. Right. And Holden Caulfield. That's why you've got that there. Yeah, I don't know if you've read it. I so Holden Caulfield is a depressed boarding school kid in the 1930s. And there's a Straussian reading of Catcher in the Rye. Lots of people see Holden Caulfield as a contemptibly bitter figure. He goes around calling people phonies. That's why when she sees the deer stalker in Principal Wells' office, she says, only a phony would wear a hat like that. Mm -hmm. The developers will get very conscious of this. Actually, what happens to Holden Caulfield? There's a scene in the book where he wakes up and one of the school teachers is trying to molest him. And the reason yeah, the reason he's so embittered is this, this is the only book J.D. Salinger ever wrote as well. He, he died with lots of unfinished manuscripts. Mm. It seems to be communicating the powerful impact that child abuse that is concealed has on the generation of children. And Holden only regains his faith. He tries to be an adult before he can achieve things. And he's, he's, he's very disillusioned with living in the city and bunking off of school. He only feels better by allowing his kid sister to go on the carousel while he suffers and waits in the rain. And then he checks himself into a mental institution and tries to get better and live a normal life. And the title is an allusion to the idea that there are kids playing in the rye fields near a cliff and they're running through and playing tag. And there needs to be someone standing at the edge of the cliff, at the edge of the rye field to catch them so they don't fall off and kill themselves without noticing. Only a total phony would wear a crappy hat like that. That is the role that Max learns to play using her power. She tries to safeguard Chloe from accidentally shooting herself, from getting (laughs) killed by fate. So she is the catcher in the rye. And she may not be able to cut against the historical inevitability of Chloe being shot by Nathan in the bathroom that day, but she is able to cultivate the character that allows her from that point to go forward and save people like Kate, redeem Victoria, things like that. That is the message. You're bang on. It is that you shouldn't have to get to the point of where you're manipulating the world around you to make everyone like you, is that you should be able to embody the character to be forthright and virtuous and try and take care of the people who really need it.
0: That's Well, th- thank you for clarifying my own thoughts in a way that was right. far better than I was doing. I was doing a pig's ear of it, to be honest. Um, but I think one of the other themes that runs through it, one of the other thematic ties that you could make to it was the fact that I noticed throughout the story that um, Max was somebody who was desperately trying to hold on to the past the entire way through, hence why she's able to rewind time. She can't get over the past. And, uh, and because that, she's sort of dwelling in it. She's dwelling in these relationships that she's come back to. She's literally living in her past. She moved to Seattle and then she moved back to Arcadia Bay to go to Blackwell again, which she says was for the fact that, oh, I can do this amazing course, but probably also is because she couldn't get it out of her head, even, especially given that she, through her time in Seattle, rather callously seems to have mostly cut ties with everybody, including her best friend, Chloe, at the time when she needed her most when her dad had just died. So she seems to have gone back to try and embody and live in that past and because she can't get over it and she can't move on with her life. That's why she's desperately trying to cling on to Chloe in the way that she does. Chloe seems to be the opposite to that, which is that she is traumatized by experiences that came in her past. But that because of that, she can't look back. She's been propelled forward by that can't make proper decisions. She's only thinking of the future in a way that's very slapdash, very in the moment. And the choice at the end, if you make the good choice, because reasonably speaking, we know that it's a good ending and a bad ending because uh, I chose chose the bad ending the first time. I went and I went, you know what? This entire bloody thing has been one exercise in trying to save Chloe one after the other. So you know what? I'm going to have strength in my convictions. You chose the B-A-E ending rather than the B-A-Y ending. And the bay I, over Bay. Yeah, and I'm going to destroy I'm going to destroy Arcadia Bay. I also thought back honestly, this was a part of the emotional choice. I thought about how terrible David felt when he realized that he had failed to save Chloe and then just shot Jefferson. Can I pause right
1: on head? that scene cuz yeah. that scene oh, that was is brilliant. one of the voice acted badass things and it's the pause there as well that intonates mm. what morality is going through his head at the time is when David just executes Jefferson. Max is horrified and David says, "I'm sorry, Max. I'm sorry you had to see that." He doesn't regret doing it at all. No, of it course, totally justified. He is just concerned for how his
0: actions might emotionally impact the young girl in front of him. David is a king. Yeah, I, I, I love David, and that was w- one of the most emotionally impactful and uh, honestly quite distressing scenes in the whole thing, because David is somebody who I knew from the beginning of the game, especially when it was revealed that he's Chloe's stepdad, that he was going to have um, unexpected depths to his character. I, d- I didn't think they would go quite that far and make him quite so admirable, the character, the whole way through, especially when if you go through the journal, In the pause menu, he's got a Confederate flag written next to, drawn next to his face. Same with Frank on his hat as well. Yeah, both of the characters that are associated with Confederacy tend to uh, turn out to be more virtuous than you would ever expect of a game like this, and that's why this is this game occupies a very interesting middle ground between the previous era of storytelling and our modern woke storytelling, which is where it seems that Life is Strange Two fell into some pitfalls, which is. This is a game that certainly I would say was written and produced by liberals, left lefties. But it was still just on that crossover point where they cared about the storytelling enough to understand that you had to flesh out and fully develop these characters and turn them into real people where they're not just one-dimensional villains. Even in 2015, 2016, this was still something that was going on, probably propelled mostly by Trump because we had this media presence of Trump being the one-dimensional cardboard cutout villain if you were listening to the lefty media.
1: In Life is Strange 2, in the opening chapter, in the first few minutes, you can encounter a letter from a neighbor in the Hispanic family's house. The Hispanic family, by the way, run to the border because the dad gets shot by a racist cop. In the house, there is a neighbor who is saying that your yard is crossing on my yard. I might as
0: well build a wall so that is the tone and tenor of the sequel yep. how how it betrays the sentiment well well that's that's the thing he, uh, david is portrayed with nuance in this not everything that he does is perfect but he's trying his best he has good intentions at heart and he is also turns out far more competent at what he is attempting to do than people initially realize because you could easily see a different universe different timeline you could say where david had been written as somebody who was just a paranoid loser down on his look, he sees shadows twitching everywhere. You could see them writing him as just an out-and-out out racist bigot. And to top it all off, he's really bad at what he does. That everyone he's following is a false lead. He has no idea what's really going on. Whereas it actually turns out, no, everybody that he's following has some relevance to the case. He was probably right on the money. And it's only through a, a, a horrifying twist of fate, through Chloe and Max getting involved in the case in the first place that he fails to catch up to the actual killers before he can save Chloe. Obviously, the real knife twist for me is the fact that if you go back and choose the correct ending, then just through a random circumstance of what happens the morning of the Monday when you start the game, Chloe gets shot and die. I mean, there was a part of me where I was really hoping that there would be a bit where, you know, Chloe gets shot and all of a sudden up pops a prompt, call an ambulance. I was just going... Call an ambulance, Max! You still might be able to
1: save her, for God's sake! There's a few things there. Number one, I think the ability for Max to have object permanence when she time travels should have allowed for a third ending, or could in the future were someone to write it, where Max can take her diary, travel back to the day using the photo, pause time like she did when saving Kate, be the sacrificial lamb for the bullet because it has to take a life that day and then hand the diary over so that Chloe in that timeline who never met her can unravel the entire conspiracy. That would be a kind of ending which puts your choices as Max in the driver's seat. To watch the full video, please become
0: a premium member at lotuseaters.com.